You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today we are reading from Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, and I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Leslie. How about we pray as we get into it? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, it's ancient and yet always relevant. And so we ask that you might teach us and show us something tonight and that we might respond to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, who is the best leader that you've ever seen? Someone that you've really looked up to and benefited from? Maybe it's someone in politics. Uh, It might be difficult to think of anyone contemporary. Uh, Perhaps you can go a little bit further back. Uh, John Howard, Paul Keating, Bob Hawke, or someone overseas, Barack Obama perhaps, Nelson Mandela, or maybe it's someone from the sporting world, a great leader like uh, the Australian cricket captain Steve Waugh back in the day. Uh, If you're a rugby fan, there was uh, one rugby captain, John Eels, whose nickname was Nobody uh, because they used to say, nobody's perfect. Uh, which I thought was a pretty great uh, nickname. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to see uh, some really remarkable leaders up close. I greatly admire my own parents who have been vice principals at a school for 30 years. Uh, the chair, the chairperson of our board across City on a Hill was a guy called Andrew Thorburn who headed up a couple of banks as a CEO and I've learned so much from him. I've learned from Guy Mason who's the head of our movement of churches as well. And, but who are the best leaders that you've seen? that you've experienced, and what is it about them that you've learnt from and uh, that you really admire, perhaps want to uh, em- emulate in your own life? 
Well, over the next couple of months, we're going to see one of the best leaders in the Bible, a guy called Nehemiah, although I'm almost a little bit embarrassed to kind of headline it like that. You see, uh, whenever someone does uh, studies the book of Nehemiah, very often it just becomes a leadership manual. You know, here's 10 ways how to influence people uh, or get them to build something for you because he's going to build a wall. And so this, is, this sounds exciting. And so it, it just becomes this thing about leadership uh, techniques. And I'm nervous about just going down there because Nehemiah is much more than that. This book is much more than just a leadership manual. And yet at the same time, it's not less than that either. See, as I've been rereading Nehemiah, I see in this guy an incredible leader, and there's actually lots of things that we can learn from him about leadership, but also just about being God's people. And so in today's passage, as we begin the book of Nehemiah, we're going to see a man of passion who was committed to God's people, who had a heart for God's people, a man of prayer who trusted God's goodness, a man of courage who made himself available for God to work in and through. So first of all, we see this man of passion who has a heart for God's people. Uh, The book begins with Nehemiah in Susa, uh, serving the Persian king Artaxerxes as his cupbearer. Uh, It's the winter of 446 BC. Uh, We put on the weather to make it feel realistic. Uh, It's the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. It's about 13 uh, years since last week's passage. Nehemiah is actually one of the most important and influential people in the kingdom. Uh, He's a cupbearer, and this means that he has an incredibly important job. He would try all of the food and wine that was reserved for the king to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. Uh, So a little bit of a risky job, uh, but it did mean that it uh, it gave him influence. See, only the most trustworthy and reliable people would have been chosen for such a task, the most loyal people. And so within that, as he's doing this job, he starts to build a relationship with the king of great trust and influence. But while he's got a a good job and a good life in Babylon, Nehemiah's heart is in Jerusalem with his countrymen. He's a Jew and he has a heart for God's people. And so he wants to find out what's happening. How How are God's people going back in Jerusalem? You might remember that God's people have been invited to go back from exile and some of them have set up the land and and Nehemiah is wondering how they're going. Sadly, the news isn't good. Verse 3, he speaks to some guys and asks them how things are going and they say, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Things aren't going well. God's people have been back in Jerusalem for close to 100 years, but they're struggling. Uh, when they were driven out of Jerusalem, uh, it was because uh, the, the, the whole place had been destroyed. The promised land that God had given them had been overrun. The walls of the city had been broken down. The temple had been desecrated. Lots of the people had been killed or sent off into exile. This is all as a result of God's judgment. They'd continually, repeatedly uh, ignored his commandments, ignored his prophets, disobeyed him. And so this judgment had come on them. And even though they'd been invited to come back, it's been hard and slow work. Things have stalled. In fact, in Ezra chapter 4, we saw that uh, King Artaxerxes, Nehemiah's boss, had told them to stop working on the temple. And so now the people are in great trouble, in great distress. There's calamity, there's misery for them, and they feel this shame, this sense of reproach. They're contemptible, they feel scorned, 
They're physically vulnerable without the, the walls, the city, the, they, the people are vulnerable and they're spiritually fragile. God's purposes for them of restoring them and, and rebuilding everything are on hold. As David Jackman puts it, the work of God is paralysed and the people of God are demoralised. And when Nehemiah hears this, it breaks his heart. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. His response is physical because it's, it's so deep, it's, it's visceral for him. Like he, he has to sit down. You know, like when you're so shocked and horrified by something, your knees give way. He has to sit down and then he mourns. He weeps for days because he has a heart for God's people. And this is quite striking. I, I mean, Nehemiah had a pretty good position. He had a pretty good life. He had lots of reasons to be satisfied. He had a good job, he had influence with the most important and powerful man in the world, he had some comfort, he had good food, at least as long as it wasn't poisoned, and he has this incredible opportunity here in Babylon. But none of those things matter if God's people are suffering. You see, his identity is bigger than himself. He's a man of God, but he sees himself as even bigger than that. He's part of the people of God. He identifies with that. He's invested in that. And so his whole uh, state of mind, his well-being, depends on how everyone else is going amongst God's people. When they are celebrating, he will celebrate. When they mourn, he will mourn with them. This is a sign of uh, someone who's mature in their faith. This is the kind of thing that God invites us to be. So it's worth us thinking about how we find our identity as God's people. Are we just satisfied with our own situation or do we ride the waves of all of God's people? You see, when you become a Christian, your identity expands. God invites us to not just see ourselves as individuals but as part of the family of God. And just as in my physical family I, I find my identity as a, as a father, as a son, as a brother, as a husband, so within the family of God, we find our identity in relationship with each other. It expands for us. In fact, it's even tighter than that. The Apostle Paul speaks of us as the body of Christ, so that when you come to Christ, when you believe in Jesus, you're brought into this, you're engrafted into this body. And just as if I, if I bang my finger, the rest of my body knows that, so it's the same in the body of Christ. We experience what others are experiencing. As Paul puts it, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. And so, just like Nehemiah, we rejoice when things are good, when we see people come to faith, whether that's here or some other church. We celebrate the spread of the gospel throughout the world and then we also mourn when things are bad, when God's people are suffering, when they're persecuted or the gospel is stymied or when we see Christian leaders fall into sin and shame. We ride the experience of God's people. I think it's significant too that Nehemiah mourns in this moment. You see, uh, there's lots of other emotions that he might have felt or emotions that we might feel when things are going bad for God's people. I often feel angry, for instance, when I see God's people treated unfairly. 
I can see that it feels rigged and that God's people are often treated more harshly than anyone else. That makes me angry. Sometimes I feel fear as I consider the future. I see governments throughout the Western world trying to restrict the Christian message, Christian teaching, silencing the gospel, and that makes me afraid. Like, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to me? Uh, Sometimes because of that, I despair. I look around and I see a secular world and it feels so impossible for things to change. Alternatively, I can almost go on the attack and feel a kind of scorn or disdain for others. I look at other worldviews, other religions, other ideas out there around us and they just feel so uh, unsatisfying and flawed and I can disdain that. Or I look within the church and I see heretics who, who won't hold to the truth and I disdain them for their compromise. But none of those emotions are very helpful. You see, scorn makes me separate from other people. I stand aloof in some self-righteous moral high ground. Despair suggests that I'm losing sight of God's sovereignty, that he's involved, that he's active, that he's doing things. And while there's seasons and moments where anger can be righteous, It's amazing how easily that devolves into something poisonous or I just try to take things into my own hands, neglecting the fact, uh, ignoring the fact that God is in control. But, But grief, grief can do something powerful. Grief is the starting place for action. See, grief is the response of love for God and for his people. For God's glory. Grief mirrors the heart of God. In Luke 19, we see Jesus, God himself. When he surveys Jerusalem, he mourns, he wept. He wept over Jerusalem, we're told. The Apostle Paul was similar in Romans 9. He says that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart because he saw that God's people had rejected Jesus. So grief is the starting point for God to work. Mourning can motivate and we see that here with Nehemiah. Because secondly, we see that he is a man of prayer who trusts God's goodness. See, when Nehemiah hears about what's going on back at Jerusalem, he weeps and he mourns and he fasts and he prays. We're actually going to see throughout this book that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. We have something like eight of his prayers described in these memoirs here. And I think we can learn a lot from how he prays here. First of all, you'll notice that he begins with God. He begins by meditating on God's character. Raymond Brown actually points out that that Nehemiah picks up eight characteristics of God, his sovereignty, his might, his holiness. He reminds himself that God is loving, faithful, vocal, attentive, merciful. And it's a helpful reminder for us that any time that we pray, we should start with God because that reminds us of who we're praying to and why we're praying to this God. See, I can imagine that Nehemiah enters this prayer time desperate to say all of these things. He's got a whole long list of things that he wants to say. He wants God to intervene and to do something profound. But before he gets to that, he reminds himself of who God is. Verse 5, he is the Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. And verse 6, he's the God who's attentive, whose eyes are open to the plight of his people. He's, it's almost like he's building his confidence. 
He's reminding himself that God can and does want to listen and then God can do something about it. He is the sovereign God of heaven. And yet he's also being humble about this. Yes, God can do this, but he's not demanding it because he recognises that whatever God wills is the right and best thing. It's interesting how similar Nehemiah's prayer here is to the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us. Let's just think about how the Lord's Prayer begins. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about what we're doing when we're praying those words. We're reminding ourselves of who God is. He's our Father. He's kind. He wants to listen. He cares about what we're going through. And he's our Father in heaven, so he's powerful. Like I can talk to my Father, but he might not be able to change things, but my heavenly Father can. He's my Father in heaven. So I'm reminding myself that God cares that he wants to listen and he can answer my prayer. And yet I'm also reminding myself that he gets to decide, your kingdom come, your will be done. I don't get to decide all of this. You are the right one, so I'm going to entrust myself to you. So whenever we start our prayers with God, we frame it right. We get our hearts right. We might have this long list of things that we want to bring, But first we remind ourselves that God wants to listen and that whatever God chooses to do is the best thing. T.J. Betts writes, All prayer must begin with being God-centred and not self-centred. Only when we have a proper perspective of God can we begin to gain a proper perspective of ourselves and the world around us. So he starts his prayer with God and then secondly you see that he confesses sin. And this is kind of the logical flow here. See, when we see and remind ourselves of what God is like, how great and mighty and perfect and holy he is, it's inevitable that we see ourselves too. And then Nehemiah confesses the sin of himself and his people because they have sinned. They've fallen short of this glorious God and they've broken their covenant with him. A covenant is an oath-bound agreement, and it's really the thing that undergirds God's relationship with his people. He made a covenant with Abraham, the father of the Jews, to make a great nation of him, to bless him, to bless the world through him. As part of this agreement, he'd also given them his law. And he told them, if you obey my law, you'll find blessing, but if you disobey my law, you'll lose that blessing. That's why God's people had been sent off into exile. They continually disobeyed God's law. And so their situation is bad because they have been bad. Now Nehemiah acknowledges all of this. Verse 6, we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. He he includes himself here. Verse 7, we've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So, It's striking that he uses the word corrupt. Like you think of corruption as having something, taking something for yourself. So he recognises that God's people have been given all of these blessings, but they've taken them and abused them, misused them. So he acknowledges all of this stuff. They're in great trouble and shame, but he doesn't deny that this is the natural consequences of where they are. 
And yet even as he sees their sin, he also hopes in God's grace. Because written into the covenant was another layer of grace. God knew that his people would be unfaithful, and so he offered them a way back. He was telling them, you need to obey my law, but even if you don't, if you turn to me, I'll be faithful and forgive. You see this in Deuteronomy. God says to them, if you act corruptly, if you do what's evil in my sight, there will be punishment. I'll scatter you among the peoples, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. You will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. That's what Nehemiah now appeals to. Remember the, Lord, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, verse 8, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I'll gather them. Bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah's calling out to God to remember the covenant. And it's remarkable, really, that God would do this. That God, this holy, perfect being, would set the demands here, yet recognise how far his people would fall short of them and still be merciful Wallace P. Ben writes, he is a God of covenant-keeping love. When in grace he enters into a relationship with his chosen people, he does not fail in his promises to them nor in his steadfast love toward them. He doesn't get tired of them nor drop his people. He doesn't give up on them. His love is sure and steadfast. And it's the same today for us as well. God has made us to be his people. He loves us. He's committed himself to us. We are unfaithful. We sin, we stumble, we fall short of his glory. God knows this. He knows that we'll do this. And so he has written in forgiveness, not just once, not just twice, but repeatedly. And maybe you need to hear that tonight. See, often when we talk about Christianity, we say what's so good is that you get forgiven and you get to have a fresh start, clean slate. And when you feel your sin, you really want that clean slate, don't you? And it's true. And yet what happens if you've got this clean slate? How, how long before you start to mess it up? I mean, the reality is we all keep sinning we keep doing the wrong thing. So where's the hope for us? Well, the hope is in our covenant God and his steadfast love. When he brings you to him, when he offers you his love, it's a covenant love. He has promised to hold on to you. Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His forgiveness isn't just a one-off it's always and forever. Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for
for sin, Hebrews 10. And that means that when you bring your sin to him, it is all forgiven, both the stuff from the past and the present and the future. You know, there's, there's things that you are going to do that you can't imagine right now doing. As you sit here in church, surrounded by God's people, determined to do the right thing, you can't imagine doing those things, but you will do them. But here we're told that God's steadfast love will cover even that. When he makes a covenant with you, it means that he holds on to you no matter what. I love what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Ultimately, God has tied himself to you. He can't break his word because that would break himself. That's why his love is steadfast. Well, it's a beautiful prayer by Nehemiah. J.R. Packer says, uh, it used to say that prayer is the measure of the man spiritually in a way that nothing else is. It reveals who we are. It reveals our priorities, how we think about God. And we certainly see that here with Nehemiah. We see that his whole life is geared around who God is. He understands and remembers who God is, a great and an awesome God, a powerful and perfect God, but also a God who cares, who listens, who can do stuff. We also see his humility before God, that he's willing to confess sin. And finally, we see that he trusts the steadfast love of God. And there's one more thing that I notice in his prayer, and this leads to our third point. The other thing I notice here is that he makes himself available to be the answer to God's prayers. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, Artaxerxes. What he's doing here is he's saying, God, I'm, I'm desperate for you to intervene and you can use me in it. See, he recognises his position. He's close to the king, has some influence. He needs this king to intervene and to change things. And Nehemiah is willing to put himself in the way of that, to, to ask God to use him to be that answer. It's worth thinking about. Sometimes we pray these really bold prayers, but we don't expect that God will use us in them. We almost don't want him to, perhaps. Oh, Lord, send labourers to the harvest, just not me. You know, speak into that person's life. They really need to be convicted. They need to be challenged or they need to be comforted. Just do it through someone else. You know, or, oh, please resolve this conflict that is really breaking us down, but but make them come to me first. Like we don't necessarily want God to, we don't necessarily want to be the answer to our prayers. We want God to do it through some other means. But Nehemiah here is humble, but he's also courageous. Courageous enough to ask God to intervene and to use him. And because of that, he's going to see God work in and through him. See, the scene as Nehemiah approaches the king is a really dramatic one. But to understand the full tension of it, we need a little bit more 
background. Nehemiah sets the scene in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence until now, that is, and the king notices it. The king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then Nehemiah tells us that I was very much afraid. You see, as a servant of the king, he was supposed to always look happy, to be rejoicing. This was a kind of royal etiquette. This is when you're around Queen Elizabeth, you're supposed to look dignified or to pat her corgis or something like that. The etiquette here was to show your joy. He was the most powerful and extraordinary person in the world. And so you had to look like you enjoyed his presence always. But he's also anxious because he knows what he has to do. He knows what he has to ask. So if you ever had to ask someone for a massive favour, my, my kids are constantly asking, can I get my Christmas present early? Like they, they, and yet they come with this sense of, oh, this is going to be a hard thing to ask. And, or maybe you have to ask your friend to help you move house and you've just hurt your arm, so they're going to have to do all the lifting or something like that. Or, you know, you need to ask your, your spouse if you can go and play board games for eight hours or whatever it is. You feel intimidated, don't you? And you, you're anxious to ask for this because this is a big thing. Well, Nehemiah has that to a whole other level. He has to ask Artaxerxes to restart the work in Jerusalem that Artaxerxes himself had stopped. See, back in Ezra 4, a group of guys had come to the Persian king and said that you need to stop this. This city is dangerous, it's rebellious, they're wicked, it's hurtful to kings and provinces. And Artaxerxes had made a decree that this must cease until he changes his mind to take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the herd of the king? So he was set against this. And now Nehemiah has to get him to change his mind. This is always hard to do, let alone with a politician. And then the next level is with a Persian king. See, when Persian kings made decrees... They were set in stone. And we actually have a classic example of this in another book of the Bible, the book of Daniel, set in a similar time period. tells the story of some of the Jewish people who were trained up as leaders in the Persian Empire. You might remember that the king, under the influence of some of his advisors, made this rule that no one could pray to anyone except for the king for 30 days. Daniel was dedicated to God and he kept praying to God. He was found out dobbed on and so he was condemned to death. Now the king was really upset about this because he loved Daniel, he really cared about Daniel but the people who tried to destroy Daniel said to him, it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. You, You can't change what you've already said. Now, if you read on the story, you see how God miraculously uh, rescues Daniel. But the point here is it's incredibly hard to change a decree that a Persian king makes. That's what Nehemiah has to do here. No wonder he feels intimidated. No wonder he's afraid. But he's prayed, hasn't he? He's prayed to the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. And so he's willing to step in here. He believes that God can work here, that God can change the heart even of a Persian king. 
As one writer puts it, Nehemiah knew that, humanly speaking, the plight of Jerusalem and her people were hopeless. But he also knew that nothing was beyond God's power to change and to help. And now we see the fruit of those prayers. First, we see how God works in Nehemiah. He speaks up to the king, verse 3. He's respectful that the king live forever. And he's also canny. Canny. He explains to the king, Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? Now, this reference to the place of my father's graves shows his cultural awareness. In the ancient world, uh, the, the graves of your ancestors were sacred places. And so he's, he's, he knows that this will tug at the heart of the king. And then when the king inquires, Nehemiah makes his request really clear. He's still very careful and respectful, you know, if it pleases the king, if it pleases the king. He checks to make sure he doesn't sound presumptuous, but he, at the same time he doesn't waver, he doesn't kind of get whiny or uh, do a guilt trip. He presses on courageously. He asks for time, probably two years. Eventually it ends up being 12. He asks for timber to build a fortress and a letter of commendation to prove the king's support. It's all incredibly wise. And then we see that he gets everything that he asked for. Verse 8, and the king granted me what I asked. It's extraordinary. Like He's asking for a lot. I mean, even just these two years, 12 years. Like I encourage the staff here at West to have holidays, but if Coy came to me and said, I'd like to take 12 years off, we might, we might need to have a conversation that talks through that. But it's clear that the king respects him, loves him even, and is willing to give him what he wants. And as I look at this, as I look at how God has worked in Nehemiah, I think back to all of his praying. It's striking how Nehemiah prays and how long he prays. See, he starts praying in the month of Chislev, we're told. It's just before Christmas. And he comes to the king now in the month of Nisan, which is basically April. So it's four months. It's a long time to be praying day and night. And that says a lot about Nehemiah's commitment. He prays and he prays and he keeps praying every day with great fervour and determination but it also points us to how often God works. He frequently makes us wait for the answer that he has for us. Why is that? Like, why doesn't God just do it straight away? He was always going to help him. So why didn't he do it straight away? Well, I think it's partly because in that time, he's actually wanting to work in Nehemiah. He's wanting to work in his heart. Uh, Wallace Ben says God was fashioning Nehemiah into a man of prayer. These months of prayer fashioned a habit in Nehemiah that will become manifest throughout the book. So we're going to see that Nehemiah is a man of prayer and these four months of prayer, of waiting, God does this great work in him to teach him how to pray, to make him a dedicated prayer. And it's not just that, he seems to be clarifying and uh, developing his prayer. See, it's amazing how specific he is. When the king asks him, what do you need? He knows exactly what to ask for because he's been praying about that for four months. God has been refining his prayer, giving him clarity and wisdom in all of that time. Uh, Peter Adams says that 
Uh, often when we have prayers, it's almost like there's a, there's a prayer down here that takes time to get out. I don't know if you've ever seen this. There, there might be something that you're praying for, and the first time you pray for it, you, you just sort of just blurt it out, but then you keep praying for it, and over time that request changes, it evolves, it develops, it matures. As Adam says, it's kind of like you, this prayer that it needs time and energy to come to the surface. Prayer is a great preparation for prayer, he says, and sustained prayer is a great preparation for great prayer. So I bet there were times during that four months where he wondered what on earth God was doing. Why haven't you given me the opportunity to speak to the king yet? Well, it's because he wasn't ready. It's because God was making him ready. As Raymond Brown puts it, the praying months prepared him for these crucial minutes. God was working him in him. He prayed for the opportunity. God made sure that he would make the most of that opportunity when it came. I hope that's an encouragement for you today. Maybe there's something that you're praying about. You've been praying about for four months, four years, 40 years, and you're wondering why God hasn't answered it yet. Well, maybe God has answered it. Maybe God is answering it because he's actually doing something in you as you pray that prayer. Each time you pray that prayer, maybe he's trying to refine you, clarify things in your heart. Maybe he's doing something that you cannot see, but one day you will see. I heard a cool story during the week. I was at a clergy conference uh, Basically, we're an Anglican church, and so we were away with a whole bunch of other Anglicans um, from our area. And I met this old guy, he was like 85, and still full of life and gospel passion. He was a beautiful man. And he was telling me about a story about his very first ministry placement. It was in this country town in the outback. And for some reason, the, one of the other ministers there, one of the other priests, just, had, just didn't like him. For some reason, couldn't work it out. And he actually... Put a, set up like a public meeting to get rid of this young guy. Horrible thing to do. Um, but anyway, it ended up that this, this guy that I met felt like he was just pushed out of the town and he had to leave. But as he was leaving the town, he bumped into this other bloke, this other priest, and said, look, I, I don't know what I've done to annoy you so much, but it's my prayer. I, I'm just going to pray that I can bless you at some time in the rest in the future. And for years, decades, he prayed for this man. And then years and years later, he's at another church and someone calls to say, oh, look, there's an old guy around the corner who's about to die and he'd like the local priest to come and see him. So he goes around to this house. And of course, it's this bloke. And they kind of reconcile and he prays for him and he's able to bless him. Such a beautiful and inspiring story. Sometimes we can pray for decades. We can wait for decades. But in all of that time, God is working in our hearts. As Brown puts it, waiting time is not wasted time. So God is not wasting the time that he's working in you right now. So God works in Nehemiah and then we see him working for Nehemiah, the king granted me what I asked, and why? For the good hand of my God was upon me, verse 8. 
the good hand of my God was upon me. This great and powerful and impressive king, God moved and changed. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Because Nehemiah had courage, he made himself available for God's work and then he saw God's work in him and through him. It's wonderful. And, of course, as as we finish up, as I look at Nehemiah, I see this great leader, but I'm also reminded of how much he points me to Jesus, the very best leader, and how Jesus is so much like this to the nth degree. See, Jesus had a heart for God's people. Just like Nehemiah, he was in comfort. I mean, Jesus was in the great comfort of heaven. But he saw us suffering in our sin and came to earth, making himself nothing to be a servant because he viewed us as something, something worth saving. And just like Nehemiah, he trusted God's goodness. Throughout his ministry, people tried to prize him away from God's will. You know, think of the devil trying to prize him away from that, tempting him to distrust God. You think of those when, when he's up on the cross and people are scorning him. Oh, prove yourself. Why don't you come down? No, he's resolute. He knows what he needs to do and he trusts God's goodness. Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He knew that on the other side of that was great honour and the saving of us. And 1 Peter 2, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus kept trusting God's goodness. He made himself available for God's work, and so he saw God work in him and through him. Death could not hold him because he was righteous. He died for us, and the one who judges justly found him perfect, raised him from the dead, and raised us to new life as well. And so Hebrews 12 says, we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We want to be people of God. We want to be people who have a heart for his people. We want to pray and trust God's goodness. We want to have the courage to make ourselves available so that he can work in and through us. And so look to Jesus. Look to Nehemiah. He's a great example, but also look to Jesus, the one who confirms all of God's goodness, the one who's made a covenant with you and with me, the one that we can trust. Let's look to him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this passage. We thank you for the wonderful example of Nehemiah. We thank you for his courage, for his faith. We thank you most of all that he put his faith in a God who can be trusted, a God who is good, a God who is powerful and kind, our Father in heaven who wants to hear our prayers and has the power to answer them. Lord, I pray that we will entrust ourselves to you every day. Lord, wherever we're at at the moment, whether we need to be reminded of your steadfast love, whether we need to uh, be given patience as we keep waiting for you to answer our prayers, help us to do that because we see in Nehemiah's example what happens when your people do that and we see most of all because of Jesus that we can trust you. 
Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.